Now, you'll recall last week, we just barely got to the first verse of Mark chapter 9. And that's because that was kind of a, a transitional verse that dealt with both what was happening and what was about to happen and kind of covers that gap. And so as, as we get started, I'm going to reread verse 1 just to kind of as the on-ramp as we're getting started. But we're going to start in on uh, verse 2. Um, but I want to give you a heads up. This passage is paralleled in both Matthew and Luke. And it's in Matthew chapter 17 and Luke chapter 9. Now, we're not going to be flipping pages back and forth. We're going to mostly stick to Mark. But uh, if you're taking notes, I, I would encourage you to write those down because I am going to refer to those other passages a little bit. And in fact, I'm going to, um, there's, there's something that comes up in verse 2 that uh, we're going to have to discuss just a little bit because Luke is going to mention it slightly differently than Mark does. And uh, I, I gave someone a heads up that they're going to have to explain that for us. But before we get to that, he, he was in uh, Sunday school and we were talking about it. And he, he said, I know why that is. I said, all right, you're going to explain it. Anyway, before we get to that, we're going to start off in verse 1 of Mark chapter 9. It says, And he was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who shall not taste of death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, <clears throat> Mark puts that right before this episode that we're about to get to. And then he makes a statement at the beginning of verse 2 that is completely different than what Mark normally did. And so that really ought to start, um, you know, just raise our attention and get, get us aware that something's going on here. And so I, I would contest that what we're about to get into is the fulfillment of what he had said, that there were some who were standing there, namely Peter, James, and John, that were going to see something that was really, really big, really, really important, that was so significant that they weren't going to taste of death until they had seen the kingdom of God after it had come with power. That was the whole thing that Jesus was talking about. You remember all the way back in chapter 1, verse 15, what was Jesus there to proclaim, to make known? Anybody remember? Okay. He was there to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God. So that has been a major theme and a major thing that's been going on. And now he's telling some of his disciples, you get to see it. And we're about to see what it is that they saw. Now it starts off in verse 2. And six days later, six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John. But like I said, there's a little bit of a difference. In Luke, it says some eight days later. So what's going on there? Why does it have that difference? And, and Paul said he has the answer. So I'm putting Paul on the spot. I gave, I gave him a heads up, so he had a few minutes warning. But Paul, what did you come up with on that? Okay. 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 So one of the one of the things, and it's a it's a important thing to be aware of, 
when you come to something in Scripture that is slightly different, there are those who immediately jump to, oh, look, there's a contradiction, throw the whole thing out. And if the Bible contradicted itself and the Bible lied, then that would be a valid thing to think about because if the Bible lies, we've got issues. But we could also step back, take a look at it, and look at the context, look at the grammar, look at the history. What's going on here, and why, why would it have this little bit of a difference? And as, as I was studying and thinking about this, I was reminded of something that would happen quite frequently when I was in the army. In the military, you're always looking forward to something. And one of the things that we were looking forward to at one point was getting out of basic training. We, we, had a, uh, we have a guy here who used to be a drill instructor, and I'm sure all of his guys wanted out, right? Maybe. I wanted out. <laughs> you, you were looking forward to that day too. And so we had this phrase. It would be X number of days and a wake-up. Three days and a wake-up. You know, we're almost to the end. Well, <clears throat> as I would interact with, with people, you know, it would, be, um, it would be Monday and we're looking forward to Friday type of an idea. Well, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. That's five days, right? Well, except if you don't count today and if you say and a wake up, then, then it's really only three days and a wake up. And then we get out of here type of an idea. There, there are lots of expressions. My point there are lots of expressions that talk about the number of days and how long it's going to be until something or that something has happened. In this culture, in the time of Christ, they would count the day on which you were as one day and then remember that their days actually started at sundown the, the day prior. So Monday night at approximately 6 o'clock when the sun went down, that would then start Tuesday. And so this, this issue of, well, was it six days or was it about eight days? What difference does that make? They're both telling us that it was this long after what Jesus had said, it was a week later. All right? That's, that's all that it's telling us. And I can say a week, and then you're like, wait a minute, that's seven days. Well, six days is a week, seven days, eight days. The, the point is that they are letting us know that this is a specific amount of time after when Jesus had made that statement. So he makes the statement um, that there are those who would see this. And then, like I said, this is very unusual for Mark. Mark almost never tells us exactly how long until something happens, except for here and dealing with, uh, I think it's chapters 14 through 16, dealing with things that happen around Christ going to the cross and the resurrection. Other than that, he uses a phrase immediately after this or very quickly, or some days later. But in this case, he's very specific. He says, six days later. And so, if you don't count the day that he's on, and you don't count the, that final day when it actually happens, there's six days in between, which also fits what Luke says, about eight days later. And Luke even uses that, that word, about, or approximately. So Luke is not being nearly as specific as Mark is. So, is there a contradiction there? No, not at all. In fact, it, both of these line up. If you were to take the time and go through, and I, I encourage you, when you're looking at something that's happening in the Gospels, compare with the other Gospels. See what else it has to say. See what's going on, because it is multiple people looking at the same event and telling what they remember, what they saw, what happened. No contradictions. None of them are, are saying, well, this happened, but that didn't happen, and, and arguing with each other. They are simply filling out the picture 
of what occurred. And, and we've talked about this before. It's like if you witness a, a car wreck and you're on one corner and someone else is on another corner, you see the exact same thing, you describe it honestly and accurately, but your perspective is a little bit different. And that's okay. There's, there's nothing contradictory about it. It's simply recognizing that they're using the words and the phrases to explain what's happening. So, like I said, we're going to dig into what Mark has to say specifically. But bear in mind, there's going to be others who give us a little bit more of a, a fuller, more colorful picture of this event. Because this is a major, significant event. And we're going to, we're going to talk about why is this uh, of such great importance that it needed to be recorded by all three of these guys to tell us about it. <clears throat> um, before we get to that, let's, let's read verse 2 and take a look at what it says. It says, And six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up to a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. Now that's going to set the whole picture of what's going on. That's going to give us a lot of the, the setting and the situation. First of all, where did they go? What, where does it say? Onto a high mountain. Which mountain? What? It doesn't tell us. It doesn't tell us. Now, there is a lot of tradition that point to particular mountains and a lot of really good reasons why it could be or maybe isn't that this mountain or that mountain or another mountain. A lot of tradition, but Scripture itself doesn't tell us exactly which mountain. It just says that they went up to a high mountain. And it, it does specify it was a, a high mountain, and it was by themselves. Why, why would they go up on a high mountain by themselves? Okay, it's something that Jesus frequently would do. He would go up for times of prayer, for interaction with his Father, for specific needs or, or reasons, so that he could get away from all the crowds. I don't know if the crowds didn't necessarily want to climb up mountains or if it was something about it, but you look through Scripture and there's a lot of times in which that's exactly what Jesus does, is he goes off by himself into a mountainous area, into a secluded place to be alone. In this instance, he takes with him three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John. Why those three? Do what? Okay, his inner circle. Okay, they were the ones closest to him. Again, it doesn't specify why. We do see that those three are very, very close to Christ. And he uses them a lot. He interacts with them a lot. He engages them. There will be times in which um, previously we saw just those three went into a particular house and witnessed one of his miracles that took place. Uh, later, we're going to see two of them asking specific questions, namely, hey, can we sit on your left hand and your right? Can we have those places of privilege because they've been with him and they've known him? We also see Peter, um, I love Peter. He comes up so many times and sticks his foot in his mouth, a lot of them. And yet, he was one of the closest disciples to Christ. He was constantly with him, learning, helping, trying to understand. Maybe he was getting it wrong at times, and yet Christ was constantly working with and on and through Peter as well. So for some reason, Jesus decides these are the three that he wants to take. They were his inner circle. They were the ones who were normally there. Why those three were picked, we don't know. We're not told anything specific like, oh, they were more holy or more worthy or more anything other than 
they were the ones that Jesus had go with him at this time. So he takes those three, he goes up with them into a high mountain, and something happens. Something unusual, something strange, something different than anything that they had experienced or seen before. It says Jesus was transfigured before them. Now, I'm, I'm sure that those of you who did the pre-study, you looked up that word. What, what does that word mean? Okay, a change in form. Were you raising your hand as well? Okay, basically the same thing. It, the idea is a change on the outside because of the inside. It is a change in form, exactly. But oftentimes this word is, is looking at something from the inside that comes out is part of the idea that's going on there. Um, this word is actually used of us, of believers, in Romans 12, verse 2. Be, be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed. How are we to be transformed there? By the renewing of our minds. All right. So that, that same idea is something that we are commanded to do, but it's also used in 2 Corinthians 3.18. Now, I know I'm reading off a bunch of verses, so I'll go back and repeat them. Romans 12.2 uses this phrase as a command to us that we need to be transformed. But 2 Corinthians 3.18 speaks of something that is done to us, that we are being transformed by the power of God. Yes, sir. So, in, there, there are similarities, there are connections with that, that we are saved and then God is at work in us, changing us. Changing us from the inside out is what's going on in uh, 2 Corinthians. But we are commanded to participate in that in Romans chapter 12. So, yes, as a result of being saved, that growth, that development that is supposed to be happening is part of what's going on, and that's the transformation. That's the change. That's the, uh, you look at the Greek, it's metamorphosis, metamorphosis, that is to be taking place in us because of who Christ is, because of what he has done, because of that new birth. Yes, exactly. One thing to, to point out is that there's a difference in those two passages that I just talked about. One of them we're commanded to do. The other one, God is at work in us to change us. Something interesting, significant in this passage, is in Mark, the, that idea of a passive in which Jesus was being transformed. He, was, he didn't transform himself. He was transformed from someone else by an outside agency is at play in here. Now, I think that that's going to become significant here in a little bit. So just kind of file that one away. We'll come back to that idea. But Mark uses a passive verb in that Jesus was transformed, not that he transformed himself uh, or this transfiguration. Um, I, I'm saying transformed, it's also transfigured. Same, same idea is what's going on here. So we'll, we will come back to that here in a moment. But what's going on with this transformation? What, what do they see? What happens with this? Verse 3, what does it say? Okay, his garments... His garments became radiant. They became exceedingly white. So not only was it radiant, it was exceedingly so. Um, <clears throat> which we're going we're gonna to get into something. I, I, I love the way that Mark says this. He starts off, he became radiant. Well, what does, what does radiant mean? What's, what's that talking about? Glowing, okay, gleaming. 
Do what? Okay. The, the word is, is sometimes used in relation to like really, really polished silver or gold or something like that, where, where it's just bright and it, it's vibrant and it's gleaming and radiant. That's, that's the kind of idea um, <clears throat> that uh, in, Mark, or sorry, in Matthew and Luke, it actually says that his face was part of what changed and became radiant. And so they saw this, this change, not just in his clothes, but also in who Christ was and the way that they viewed him. But Mark really focuses in on his clothes, that, that his garments became radiant. They started to shine type of an idea um, and became exceedingly white. Now, white throughout Scripture is used of like the heavenly beings, the, the angels, things of that nature. It's, it's very common that this would be connected with that idea. But, but Mark doesn't just say that Jesus started to glow or that his clothes were, were really white. Uh, he kind of says that his clothes were really, really white, so white that no launderer on earth could whiten them. And, and this was a, an interesting word, that, that idea of launderer is a fuller. And so I started kind of rabbit trailing down that, studying that one out and figuring out, okay, what, what, what's a launderer in their day? What, what's that talking about? This was someone who would go out and gather the wool, basically. Like after, after the shearing was done, someone would buy up all that wool, right? And then they were going to make use of it. Well, you have to clean it first, right? Any, has anybody ever worked with wool, like right off of a lamb? It is, yeah, Elsha's raising her hand. A couple of us have, just, just for the fun and experience of it. Um, you, you get it, and it's, it's dirty, it's nasty, it came off of an animal. Even if that animal was fairly clean, it, it needs to be washed. And so you wash it, and it's got uh, lanolin in it, it's, it's got some oils and some grease. So you have to wash all of that out, and then you, you prepare the wool, and then you have to bleach it to get white. If, if you want white as your color, or you can dye it other colors, but you have to clean it, and then you have to bleach it. And, and you have to prepare that wool so that it will be white, so that you can use it to make clothes, to make garments, to make string, or whatever you're going to use it. Well, uh, Mark is giving us this, this example that he made, that Jesus was so white, the, the garments that he was wearing, that you can't, no one on earth was able to make it that white. Even if they tried to bleach it, it was, it was not just radiant or exceedingly white, but it was so white there is no one on earth who could possibly make it. Why do you think that Mark was making such an emphasis of this idea? I think it's because... Do what? Yeah, I think that it's because he wants to make sure that his reader understands this is something supernatural. This is not... Not normal. This isn't something that could just be kind of passed off as, oh, you know, they went up on a mountain and they had this, this religious experience. Or, no, like this is a major supernatural event. This is something that is huge and really needs to be paid attention to. So not only do they go up on this high mountain and they see Jesus changed, transformed, and his, his face is glowing, as uh, Matthew and Luke tell us. His clothes are radiant. His, they, they become white, exceedingly so. So much so that, that no one on earth could possibly make clothes that white. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. We're, we're getting there. You're, you're jumping ahead of me. No, it's okay. It's okay. That's... That's kind of the point, yes. That's what Mark is getting at, is that this is something huge. This is something big. This is 
of Old Testament proportions. And that's, that's what we're going to get to here in just a moment. In verse 4, we find that a couple of people appeared, showed up. Who are those people? You can read it. It's open book. Moses and Elijah, right? Now, in, in Matthew, yeah, Matthew and Luke, it's listed the other way. It's Moses and Elijah. Here, it's Elijah appeared to them along with Moses. I don't think that there's anything major or significant that we need to read into that, other than that's just the way that Mark is expressing the idea that these two showed up. Yes, sir? Okay. That... That is one of the questions that I have written down right here. Have you all been reading my notes or what? <laughs> I'm just kidding. So how did they recognize Elijah and Moses? It says that it's Elijah and Moses, but how did they know that? You, you mentioned that it's true. Do you have a, a way in which they... Yeah, there you go. They were just wearing name tags. Would you... Would you... Okay. Okay, maybe they called each other by name. Were you raising your hand? Oh, raising your name tag. Maybe they had name tags. We aren't told how they recognized them. It seems that there is an ability to recognize people after they are resurrected. Um, as you look through Scripture, Jesus, when he is raised from the dead, he is known. People recognize who he is. They're able to tell that that was him. We see here that Moses and Elijah were recognized. Um, there's a lot of talk about in the end times when we will see one another and we'll know each other and how that all works. I don't know for sure. It doesn't go into great detail telling us other than they recognized it was Elijah and Moses. Was it because they were having a conversation? Was it that God revealed it to them? Was it that they were just so obvious and easy to tell? Hey, that's who they are. I, I don't know. Do what? Unless you're Thomas. Well, Thomas wanted it to be proved to him, and then Jesus appeared to him, and was like, yep, that's him, no doubt. So, one way or another, they know that it's these two. Um, God informed them in some way or another that Elijah and Moses had appeared. But why those two? Why, why would it be those two guys? Okay, okay. Maybe it has something to do with end times, with the future. Any other ideas? Okay. 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 Couple couple of reasons come up, and um, <clears throat> I think I think there are multiple reasons that are given that that would be reasonable. And God doesn't tell us specifically. I sent these two for this reason. It's but as as we dig in and we try to understand, you know, what what's going on here. Couple of reasons that that kind of come to mind is that these were two of the greats from the Old Testament, and yet. 
I don't find that one very convincing. I mean, when you think of the greats from the Old Testament, who comes to mind? Okay, King David. That, that's actually the first one I've got written down. King David, he was the greatest of the kings of the Old Testament. What about Joshua? He was a mighty warrior. I mean, that, wouldn't, wouldn't you just love to get to, to sit down with him? Or I, I remember as a kid always thinking of Samson. Wouldn't it be cool? I mean, this big, strong, massive guy to get to, to see Samson. Do, do what? Did you have another one? Abraham, the father of the nation, right? Wouldn't, wouldn't, it be, wouldn't any of those make sense? Well, God sent these two. One, one idea has to do with the scriptures. If, if you think about how they referred to the Old Testament, in, in Jesus' day, they talked about the law and the prophets, right? Moses is the one who gave the law. Elijah was a significant prophet, so maybe it has to do with the law and the prophets. And what God is doing here is letting it be known that Jesus is the continuation and the fulfillment of that speaking from God, that continuation of the scriptures. Because uh, you'll recall from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, that it talks about in days past, God spoke through the prophets, and we, we heard and we understand, but in these days, we understand because he has given us his son. The word was made flesh, as John says. Um, so that, that would be one idea, that this is kind of the fulfillment, tying together the Old Testament, the New Testament. We've got the, the giver of the law, one of the major prophets, talking to Jesus, who is now the word made flesh, and we understand that he is, is revealing more of what God has given to us. Another idea is that these Two men actually, instead of pointing backwards and to the present, are pointing forwards to the end times. Throughout the Old Testament, we see uh, predictions and pointing forward of things that were going on, prophecies about what was coming. One of those comes in Deuteronomy 18, points to a prophet like Moses who was to come. And then in uh, Malachi 4, it says that Elijah would come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Now, we're, we're going to deal a little bit with the eschatological uh, future end times type things that are going on uh, here in a minute. But one of the ideas is that these are pointing forward to end times prophecies and that this is part of the fulfillment of all that God has promised in the Old Testament pointing forward to the Messiah who would come, ultimately pointing forward to his kingdom that the Messiah would rule and reign on earth forever. Okay, So those are kind of the two ideas that, that most come up. I think that both of them are reasonable, that, that both of them are probably part of what's going on. And so ultimately what we see is that Jesus is talking with these two significant Old Testament characters who are pointing forward both to who Christ is and to what is to come. Now, could God have sent anybody that he wanted to? Sure. There's no reason that he couldn't have sent any of the other greats from the Old Testament. These are the ones that he selected. These are the ones that he sends. And I think that it is reasonable to recognize that they are pointing to the prophetic utterances that God had given in the Old Testament looking forward to the time of Christ and to the ultimate fulfillment of the messianic promises. Yes, sir. Um, just kind of on track a little bit, but an observation about 
Yeah. So, so both of these guys were involved in parting of waters to allow God's people through to get to. Under the the power and authority that God had given them, yeah, yeah. In, interesting things to to look at and consider. And and even if you are reading through and you come to a name of somebody from the Old Testament, I would encourage you, look up the cross-references. Go back and, and check out, okay, who is this person? What's going on? Why is he being referenced? What What's all of this that's happening? Yes, sir. That's... That's also one of the one of the things that's brought up a lot is the fact that Elijah didn't die. God God took him up. And so that's part of where the prophecy in Malachi is pointing towards Elijah is coming back. Elijah will come again. We're going to we're going to talk about that prophecy a little bit um here in, after a while because you'll notice we're we're skipping ahead slightly. You'll notice that the disciples on their way down, they're discussing these things and trying to figure out, okay, what's going on and why is this? And we've always heard these things. And so they're going to talk about it, but we'll get there shortly. Uh, We find at the end of verse 4 that these two people, Elijah and Moses, who had appeared, are talking with Jesus. Now, as Tiffany mentioned uh, in Luke, it records what they were talking about. Did anybody look that one up and, and know what their discussions are? What is it? Okay, what's to come? His death, right? His, his departure is how it's phrased in Luke, but the fact that he was going to go to Jerusalem and suffer and die, which kind of seems odd because Jesus is supposed to be the Messiah, right? The Messiah was going to come and he was going to rule and reign. He was going to, you know, take over and, and be the, the savior of the people, at least that's what all of the Jews were looking for. They were looking for this political leader who was going to, to show up and get Rome out of the way and make everything right again. And yet, you'll recall, last week, Jesus had been talking with Peter, and well, with all of his disciples, really, and had said, who do people say that I am? And you, you remember, they listed off several options and things that had been thrown out, but who do you say that I am? Peter, our wonderful Peter, jumps up, spokesman, immediately. You are the Christ, the Messiah, the one who was promised throughout all of the Old Testament. And, and Peter was right. He nailed it. And then he turns right around, and when Jesus says, okay, I'm about to suffer and die, he's like, no, 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 you can't do that. That's not allowed. See, Peter recognized what the Messiah was, but he didn't have the full picture. He didn't fully understand it. Jesus was talking to Moses and Elijah about what was about to happen, the suffering of this servant, this uh, terrible situation that Jesus was about to get into in which he was going to be rejected and suffer and die. But ultimately, he was going to raise again. Well, verse 5. We're, we're going we're to come back to a couple of those things in a little bit. But verse 5, Peter our wonderful Peter, 
sees all of this happening, sees the radiance of, of Christ, sees these Old Testament individuals who came, these, these great men of the past, and, and he jumps up, opens his mouth, and says to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. Now, before you pick on Peter too much, Put yourself in this situation. This is, this is crazy. This is, I mean, truly out of this world. How would you respond to something like that? Like, what, what would you do? And that's, that's kind of where Peter is. He, he jumps right in, and he actually makes a reasonable suggestion. He says, let's build three tabernacles or, or booths, three. Let, let's make these guys comfortable. That's, that's really what's going on. He wants to honor them. He wants to recognize. He, these, are, these are great teachers, and so he wants to set up somewhere that they could teach from. He wants to give them a, a comfortable place to be at. In Peter's mind, apparently, he's expecting them to be there for a long time, to be there for a while, and so he wants to take care of the practical, the normal, the basic type ideas. Um, he wants this, this idea of three tabernacles or shelters is simply setting up somewhere for them to rest, to, to have a little bit of comfort. It's a nice, reasonable response or idea, except, yet again, Peter doesn't get the full picture. He doesn't really understand what's going on. And in, in fact, verse 6 says he didn't know what to answer, or, or really how to respond. He didn't know what to do in this situation because they became terrified. I, I can understand that. You see this, this man that you've been following around to suddenly start to glow, and these Old Testament figures just appear. I think terrified would probably be a reasonable reaction. <laughs> yeah, probably. Yes, ma'am. Okay. Yeah. Thru throughout Scripture, when an angel shows up, they fall on their face. That's a, a reasonable response. And they don't know what to do. You're right. Exactly. Well, Peter makes the suggestion, um, and, and in this one, it doesn't really say any response to that. It just moves on to the next thing that happens. Verse 7, then a cloud formed overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud. Now, we're going to pause there. Throughout the Old Testament, there are a lot of clouds that come about. Can you, can you think of any examples of when a cloud appears? You already commented on one. Go ahead. Okay. During the exodus in the desert, they, there was a cloud that guided them. Okay. Go ahead. Yep. Three and a half years later. And okay. Okay. Any others? Okay, that, that hasn't happened yet, but yeah, that's something that we're going to see is that when Jesus ascends, he is received into a cloud. Any other examples? Do what? I don't think a cloud was mentioned at that point. Okay, that, that's the one I'm looking for. When Solomon built the temple, it says that the cloud descended on it, right? The cloud oftentimes would represent the presence of God. 
And in the, in the Exodus, while they were in the desert, the cloud was God's presence with them. And when Moses went up on the mountain to talk with God, he went into the cloud for that to, to occur. So there's, there are a lot of things, and I, I think you had commented on it previously, that is this like the Shekinah glory showing out of Christ? Is this all of this? I mentioned um, the, that this idea of the transfiguration, he was transfigured, was an outside agent acting on him to change him from the inside out, is, is the idea of those words. And then we have here, God shows up in the, in the form of this cloud, and he's going to speak. And, and what I would contest, what I would, would suggest, is that all of this is God at work, doing this event, making this entire episode happen for God to show up and say what he's about to say. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. The whole thing is focused on God making this declaration of who Jesus is. Who is Jesus? Throughout all of the book of Mark, we've been looking at that idea. And there has been miracles. There have been teachings. There have been interactions in which Jesus has gone through this process of showing who he is and letting it be known. We've had several statements or declarations throughout the book of Mark to tell us who he was. Three times. The first one we saw back in chapter 1, verse 24, there were a bunch of demons. They recognized who he was. And they said, we know who you are. And Jesus tells them, be quiet. And, and I, I believe that that was largely because their, their goal, the demon's goal, was to defame him. Ultimately, they wanted to destroy him and get rid of Jesus. And so for some reason, they, were, they recognized him. They were going to make a big stir and a big deal out of it. And Jesus cuts them off and says, nope, nope, you're not allowed to talk about that. Um, it wasn't the right time and it wasn't the right way. And so really throughout the book of Mark, we've seen Jesus tell people not to say things, not to do things because the timing's not quite right. We later saw in chapter 8, verse 29, Peter recognized who Jesus was. I already mentioned this one. He says, you are the Christ. Exactly. You got it. But Peter's understanding and recognition isn't 100% there. He doesn't have it quite right. And in fact, Jesus then goes on to tell what the Messiah had to do, what the Christ had to do. And Peter tries to step in and say, nope, nope, you're not allowed to do that. That's not okay. We, we also saw one other example that came up in chapter 1, verse 11, when Jesus is baptized. God does say, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. And God does make that declaration, but in that instance, he's talking directly to Jesus. And he's, he's using that phrasing, that term, you, as in a direct conversation with Christ. Here, however... God is making this statement, and he's not talking to Jesus. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the disciples, to Peter, James, and John. He's letting them know, this is my beloved son. Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it's, it's not just this gentle suggestion of like, 
hey, this, this guy's pretty cool. You ought, to, you ought to listen to him. You ever get a recommendation for like some music or something? Hey, this is neat. You ought, to, you ought to listen to. That's not the phrasing that's used here. God, out of the cloud, is letting them know this is the Messiah. This is Jesus. This is the promised one. Listen to him. And the, the idea of listen in, in this case and, and oftentimes is not just let it go in one ear and out the other. Not just hear it and say, oh, that's great and wonderful, you know, whoop-de-doo. No, it is a command to hear and take action based on, to, to put into practice what's going on. We see, we see this idea of listen or hear come up a lot of times throughout Scripture, and it's very, very frequently tied with a command to do whatever it is that God has, is telling them. So listen to Moses' commands, the law. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord, he is one. Listen to Jesus. The idea is not just have it go in one ear and out the other, but to actually pay attention and take action based on. So, what are they supposed to listen to? Okay, listen to Jesus. What, what were they supposed to listen to? What were they supposed to do? Anything and everything he says. Blanket statement across all of it. Now, it would be really easy to say, okay, he, he did these teachings previously, and all of that's what we're supposed to listen to, because he's the Messiah. He's the coming one. He's going to be king. But I think that it's also tied to what he just told Peter and what he had just told his disciples. I am going to Jerusalem to suffer to be rejected, to be abused, to die. They didn't want to hear that. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll get you in a moment. They didn't want to hear that. The, the disciples didn't like that idea, it seems, because Peter tries to tell them, no way, that's not going to happen. And Jesus reprimands him. And so it's anything and everything that he has said, all of his teaching, that's what they're supposed to listen to. Go ahead. Mm -hmm. That's who he is. Exactly. God is making the declaration. This isn't the demons trying to, to misdirect or cause problems or anything like that. It's not Peter with a, a misunderstanding, an incomplete understanding. No, this is God himself making the declaration, letting it be known, this is the Christ. This is my son. Listen to him, follow him, obey him, pay attention to him. Verse 8, all at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore. That would be kind of startling, kind of, kind of strange and odd. Um, all at once is a different phrase than Mark normally uses. Uh, typically he says immediately, but in this case he uses something a little bit different. It seems to indicate they weren't really aware of what all was going on. In fact, in, in, some, uh, in Matthew, it records that the disciples had fallen down and Jesus lifts them up. So it, it seems almost like they were just in shock, in awe of all of this that's going on. And they look up and there's nothing there. The cloud's gone. Elijah and Moses are gone. Everything's back to normal as it was. They didn't see any of that stuff depart. It's just suddenly, it's gone, except for Jesus alone. So Jesus is standing there, the disciples are there, 
Now what are they supposed to do? They had this, this big, amazing event. Shouldn't they just run down and tell everybody? Wouldn't that be like your response? Like, I got to tell someone about this. Well, verse 9, as they were coming down the mountain, he gave them orders. He, he commands them not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had rose from the dead. This is, again, a normal practice of Jesus throughout the Gospel of Mark to tell people, don't say anything about what happened. But in this one, it's a little bit different because here he gives a limit to the time frame. Whereas other times he says, just don't, don't make a big deal out of it, don't tell people. Here he says, until the Son of Man rose from the dead, until Christ is resurrected again, that's when you can tell people what you've seen. That's when you're supposed to spread the word and let it be known. Um, <clears throat> now, as they were on their way down, Jesus gives them this command, and it, it seems odd, and yet they, they seize on that statement, verse 10, they start discussing it and talking amongst themselves. Uh, what, did, what is he talking about, this rising from the dead? What's, what's going on there? Now, it makes sense if, again, if you study some of the culture and the setting and, and what's going on, it, it makes sense because there was some theological arguments in their day about what the resurrection was, what was going on. And Jesus is even uh, has some interactions about that very thing. Paul, uh, later on, is going to use that as an argument that takes place between some. And there, there's a lot going on in their day about this idea of resurrection. And so they're discussing this, like, what, what does that mean that he is going to raise from the dead? That, that that's when we can talk about it. it. Is this pointing, like, towards the end times when ultimately everyone is raised in the, the resurrection that's to come? Or, or what's going on? And so they ask him a question. And the question has nothing to do with that conversation, which as, as I was reading through it and, and, you know, as I read through different things, it, it seems odd. Like, what, what? I thought you were talking about this resurrection from the dead. Why are we talking about Elijah? Why do they ask the question about Elijah? Well, Jesus is going to end up tying all of that together to, to hopefully have it make sense here in a moment. So they were, they were having this discussion as they went down. Jesus commands them, don't tell anyone until I'm raised from the dead, until the right time. But they ask a question that's unrelated. They, they ask about Elijah. Why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? That's verse 11. And, and why do the scribes say that? Now, <clears throat> notice that the, uh, the disciples are asking what the scribes say, not why did Malachi, why did the Old Testament say that Elijah needs to come first? I, I find that interesting. Um, largely, what we end up seeing is that they trusted their teachers. These scribes, these, the Pharisees, they were the teachers of the law. They were the ones who were supposed to know, and they, they trusted them, they relied on them. And why is it that they say that Elijah has to come first? What's going on there? Ultimately, that was accurate from the Old Testament. In, in Malachi, it does tell us that Elijah will come first before the um, ultimate day of the Lord. That, that is a prophecy that's going to take place. And they, they ask this question, you know, what's going on with that? Jesus responds then in verse 12, he said to them, Elijah does come first and restore all things. So 
the scribes got that one right. That is what's going to happen. Elijah will come first, uh, and, and Elijah has certain things that God has directed that he's going to do. And yet, he asked them a, a question then. How is it written that the Son of Man, that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? The disciples had, had kind of keyed in on certain things that, that were being taught and certain things that were going on, certain prophecies, and completely ignored this other set of prophecies, this, this other things that points to the fact that the Messiah was going to come and be rejected and suffer and die. And Jesus is letting them know, hey, I'm going to be raised again from the dead. That's all part of the prophecy. That's all part of what is to come with this idea of who the Messiah is, who the Christ is, and what God is doing, and what is to be expected. <clears throat> and so he says, but I say to you, Elijah has indeed come, and they did whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. Now, there's a lot going on with this idea of Elijah. Um, Jesus deals with their misunderstanding of prophecy. He makes it clear that what was to come was not yet the power and authority of the Messiah, but the suffering and death of the Messiah. That that's what was on the way. And then he confirms that, yes, the prophecies talking about Elijah are going to come true. In fact, they have. That one kind of raises some eyebrows. And, and it becomes a, an issue and a challenge of like, well, what's going on here? How, how's that supposed to happen? See, Jesus wants them to know that he is going to suffer, that he is going to die, that he is the Messiah. All of these things are true. All of these prophecies of the Old Testament are true and accurate. But what's going on with this statement, Elijah has indeed come? Now, <clears throat> one of the things that comes up a lot is the idea of reincarnation, that, that Elijah was going to be reincarnated in John the Baptist. Has anybody ever heard that idea, that, that concept thrown out there? Okay, I want to I start off plain and simple. Reincarnation has nothing to do with it. Nowhere does Scripture ever give the idea of someone who dies comes back as someone else. Okay? So reincarnation is completely the wrong way to think about this idea. Um, <clears throat> if, if that were the case, if Elijah came back as somebody else, as John, then it should have been John that appeared on the mountaintop, right? Not Elijah, because he had been reincarnated. So reincarnation is off the table. That does not work. That does not fit with anything in Scripture. And yet, we go to Matthew 17, verse 13, and it makes clear that Jesus was talking about John the Baptist. Now, Mark doesn't, doesn't write it that simply for us. He doesn't just come out and say it. Um, in verse 13 of Mark 9, it says, I say to you, Elijah has indeed come. They did whatever they wished, just as it, was, just as it is written of him. Matthew goes on to explain he was talking about John. So if reincarnation doesn't work, then what is going on here? How, how does that work out? <clears throat> um, well, you know, I think in order to understand this, we have to understand there's an idea within prophecy of what's called a dual fulfillment. 
that there are things that happen that partially fulfill a prophecy, but don't completely fulfill a prophecy. A couple of really good examples come up um, in Acts. Peter is going to talk about a prophecy that Joel said in which the, the Holy Spirit was going to be poured out on people, but it doesn't fully complete what Joel had said. It's a partial fulfillment, but not an entire fulfillment. Um, we also have a good example when the angel comes to Mary and says um, this, this idea of the virgin is going to conceive. That was originally given in a setting in which within a few months there was going to be a young woman would get pregnant and all of these things would be fulfilled within the Old Testament Isaiah setting of that prophecy. However, it was also, so that's a partial fulfillment, it was also pointing to the future, to the time and the coming of Christ, in which a virgin, by a technical definition, a virgin would conceive. Completely different, and yet both of those are fulfillments of a prophecy. So there's this idea of, of a dual fulfillment or a partial fulfillment, in which one thing was what God was pointing to, was exactly what God wanted, but didn't fully accomplish everything, that there was still yet some to come. This is one of those examples. In Malachi, it is talking about the literal prophet Elijah coming again before the day of the Lord. That's end times. That's future. That is going to happen. There will be Elijah himself. The prophet that was in the Old Testament, dealt with the kings, was taken up to heaven. He will come back again in the end times and fulfill prophecies, things yet to come. There's also a partial fulfillment of this in the person of John the Baptist. That, that one at the day of the Lord is uh, the, the literal prophet Elijah. However, Jesus is also pointing to a partial fulfillment in the person of John. According to Luke 1.17, John came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. John was the forerunner of Christ. The, the um, angel Gabriel in Luke 1.16 even announces his birth and connects John with the prophecy of Elijah, that idea that, of his turning back the fathers to the sons and all of that. So all of these are pointing to John as being the fulfillment of that prophecy. However, when John is asked specifically, are you Elijah? He says no. Why? Because he is not literally Elijah standing there. He is John the Baptist, who is fulfilling the prophetic expectations of Elijah in this partial way in preparation for the coming of the Messiah so that uh, these Old Testament prophecies would be fulfilled. Ultimately, what we, what we find is that Jesus is connecting the two. He is connecting Elijah with John the Baptist. But in Matthew chapter 11, verse 14, that's the, that's the big one to take a look at and dig into. So let's, let's turn to Matthew eleven fourteen real quick. <clears throat> I know I, I listed a bunch of, of other passages. All of those point to and deal with this idea, but ultimately we come to uh, Matthew eleven fourteen, and that's going to give us kind of the clearest statement about it. They've been talking about um, John the Baptist. He was in prison. He had sent word by his disciples asking a question. And the crowd are kind of like, well, why is, why is John the Baptist asking, you know, are you actually the Messiah? You know, what's going on? Um, Jesus kind of affirms 
how important and special John the Baptist was. We get down to verse 14. Um, well, sorry, actually verse 13. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you care to accept it, he himself is Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. A couple of, couple of things to notice and point out. If you care to accept it, if you are willing to accept it, so there's a, a conditional aspect that Jesus is including. And then also that follow-up verse, verse 15, that says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus recognizes this is, this is one of those teachings that it's not plain and simple and easy and just, okay, we're, we're going to take it and run with it. Ultimately, what's going on, uh, another way of saying it is, John is Elijah, but not how you're expecting him. Not what you think is going to be the fulfillment. Not in the eschatological, eschatological sense, the end times sense, but in a different way. Like I said, even uh, the, the angel Gabriel at the announcement of John's birth connects John with this prophecy about Elijah. So, all of that to say, John the Baptist is fulfillment of the prophecies of Elijah in a partial way, but there is still prophecy concerning Elijah yet to be fulfilled in that the literal Elijah will return and do certain things just like God had promised. John the Baptist fulfilled part of that, ushering in the start of the end times. And, and as you go through Scripture, you actually see that they refer to we are in the end times, meaning the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies pointing forward. God doesn't work on our time frame. God doesn't work on our time scale, so keep that in mind. Uh, Old Testament prophecies were being fulfilled in Christ, in the t- day and time of Christ, that had continuing uh, expectations that were still yet to come along the way. So then, John is Elijah in a prophetic sense, but there will also be more to come with the original Elijah returning before the day of the Lord. Okay, so they discussed all this. They were trying to figure it out. Jesus continues to teach them, continues to help them understand. God has said, God has made this declaration, this is Jesus. Now, I got to say, at this point, there should be no question remaining about who is Jesus. Throughout the Gospel of Mark, we've been looking at over and over and over again that question, who is Jesus? Jesus proves who he is by the things that he says, by the things that he does, by the feeding of the multitudes, by the miracles, by the the, uh, healings, by the casting out of demons, even by the stilling of the water. All of these things are pointing to Old Testament ideas to verify that, yes, this is God himself amongst us. We get to this point, and, and God makes it clear. He speaks from the cloud. He introduces these, these two Old Testament individuals. He lets everybody know, no question, no doubt, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. So what are we supposed to do with that? So what? That's, that's, that's really how I, I like to end things off, because this is all really, really interesting. It's, it's neat to work through it and try and understand it and figure it out. But if, if we just leave it there, what's the good? I think that's really what happened a lot with the people as they were seeing these miracles, as they were experiencing all of these proofs, who is Jesus? He is the Messiah. There should be no doubt. So what? What are we going to do with that? 
If there's no doubt as to who he is, you are left with a choice. Accept him or deny him. Plain and simple. God gave this command specifically to to them there, but really for us as well. That's who he is. Are you going to listen to him or not? To deny him with all of these evidences, with all of these proofs that he is the Messiah, that he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, that there is end times expectations, that he is the key to all of this, to deny him is to be willfully ignorant and reject what God himself declares. There are a lot of people who try and say, well, you know, there's lots of ways to God. There's lots of things you can do. There's lots... To deny Christ, to reject him, is to be willfully ignorant. Because God himself said, this is my beloved son. This is who you are to follow and to listen. So what ultimately comes down to the command that God gave to the disciples is the same one that we need to have. Listen to him. If Jesus is who Jesus said he is, if Jesus is who Peter said he is, and if Jesus is who God himself said he is, so what? Listen to him. Not just in one ear and out the other. We were, we were even talking a little bit this morning about how easy it is to just read through Scripture. You just you skim through it. You don't give it a second thought. You just let it in one ear and out the other. But to actually dig in, to pay attention, to study it, not just to show up on a Sunday morning and listen to Isaac talk about it, but to actually dig in yourself. And really, that's, that's my goal, is to help you learn how to, to, to figure these things out and walk through it. That's why we, we have the, the pre-study guides that come out each Wednesday. And dig into it, learn it, listen to it, so that you can put it into practice, so that you can be like these disciples, follow him, obey him. Do what he commands. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, as we begin to catch just the smallest glimpse of who you are, you are amazing. You are awesome and powerful. And Lord, what, a, what an amazing thing for these disciples to get to see that glimpse of the glory of God. Lord, we look forward to the day when that is, is revealed completely. But until then, Father, I pray that you would help us to accept Christ, to follow him, to obey, to listen, and to put into practice what you have taught and what you have commanded. Lord, each of us is, is at a different place in our walk with you. Lord, I don't know if there might be one here who has never accepted you, never put their faith and trust in you and your completed work on the cross as, as we are approaching that in the Gospel of Mark and recognizing that Jesus didn't come to, to take over and rule in the way that they were expecting, but to suffer and die, to pay the penalty for sins. Lord, if there's one here who does not know you, I pray they would accept you, trust you, and put their faith in Christ. For those who, who have, Lord, may we learn to listen better, to draw closer, to follow, to obey, would help us to, to study your word, to dig deeply into it, to love and cherish it, and to put it into practice so that we will be 
the people that you want us to be. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your love. Thank you that you guide us. Help us to follow you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.